Hello and welcome to the last episode in the current series of Microphilosophy. I'm Julian Bagini. This series has tied in with my latest book, How to Think Like a Philosopher, and we've been following a very straightforward format. I have two guests and each one is going to propose something to do or to avoid in order to think better. And if I have time, I chip in with a suggestion of my own at the end. So without any further ado, let me introduce my guest today. Maisha Cherry is an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of California, Riverside. Her research interests lie at the intersection of moral psychology and social and political philosophy, more specifically in the role of emotions and attitudes in public life. Her recent book, The Case for Rage, Why Anger is Essential to Anti-Racist Struggle, makes a case for anger at racial injustice. And I believe, and tell me if I'm wrong here, Maisha, that after a 10-way auction, Princeton University Press has won the North American rights to your forthcoming book, The Failures of Forgiveness. Is that right? Yes, that's right. It's coming out in September this year. Okay. Maisha also hosts the excellent Unmute podcast. So welcome, Maisha. Thank you so much. Katarina dutil Novais is Professor of Philosophy and University Research Chair at VU Amsterdam and a Professorial Fellow at RK at the University of St. Andrews. And she's currently leading a project, The Social Epistemology of Argumentation. Uh, big words thrown in there. Epistemology is basically a, a fancy word for theory of knowledge. So if at any point in this podcast you hear the word epistemic or epistemology, just think of knowledge and you'll be with us. She's known for her research on the history and philosophy of logic, philosophy of mathematics, social epistemology, reasoning and cognition, and argumentation theory. In 2022, she won the Lakatosh Award for her book, The Dialogical Roots of Deduction. Now, listen, there are book awards and there are book awards. And the Lakatosh Award is, you know, creme de la creme. If you're writing in philosophy of science, this is the one that you want to win. I mean, there are years where they don't even award it because they don't judge any book worthy of the accolade. So that's a tremendous achievement. And congratulations, Katerina, and welcome. Thank you so much. Yes, glad, glad to be here. Okay, so let's kick off and let's go in strictly alphabetical order. Let's start with Maisha. So what is it, the one thing you would like us to think about in order to think better? Well, I think we should kind of rethink the way we think about emotions, particularly anger. And there seems to be, I'm going to call it a myth, uh, but a very popular myth that suggests that if you are angry, then you can't think properly. Um, you can't reason properly. And you also can't argue properly. And I think we need to rethink anger. And I think in rethinking anger in that way, we'll be able to make more space for anger in our thinking lives, um, but also in our deliberative practices. Now, of course, the idea that anger is some kind of obstacle to good thinking has got a very long pedigree in philosophy. People think especially of the Stoics and how they felt we had to calm our anger. I mean, in philosophy, are there any actual precedents for your view? Did you come across any <laughs> philosophers who said, actually, do you know what? This anger business isn't such a bad idea after all. Or, or was it universally? People say, oh, no, 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 don't get angry. No, I think there's a, you're right to point to the Stoics. There's, there's a tradition of this, right? So Seneca was very weary of, 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 of anger. And particularly, I mean, you know, he was very weary of it, particularly in, in, the, in the lives of political leaders. I mean, he saw firsthand uh, how political leaders could be angry and, and through that anger, they could, you know, misuse their power and, and destroy people that were less powerful than them. And then you have, you know, he, he mentioned instances in which, you know, even those who are close to you, 
one can be so angry that you end up ruining the lives of those who are close to you and also end up ruining your own lives. So he talks about vengeance. And, and so that's why he describes it as kind of this, this wild madness. Um, and he suggests that we should do things differently. Now, that's a interesting picture to paint of anger. And there's no doubt that I think there are instances in which when one is angry, one is not thinking about others or one is not really thinking about the full consequences of their actions or the emotion can overtake them in such a way in which, you know, they can't really reason. So we can describe them as, as quote unquote, mad in the ways in which Seneca suggests. But I don't think that that is, in all instances, our experience of, of anger. I mean, there's even work, and Glenn Pettigrove mentions this work in his kind of argument against against moral anger, um, suggesting that, you know, there's lab studies that suggest uh, that when you arouse the anger of, of participants and then you have them do these kind of rational tasks, they kind of fail. And, you know, so one might say, well, Seneca said it <laughs> thousands of years ago. And then we have empirical studies to suggest that, you know, when you have this emotion, you can't think properly. And so we, there's no space for it. You know, but I've always felt uncomfortable about, about those lab studies. I mean, you know, there, there's questions to ask at what stage or what context are we referring to here? So there's no doubt. And there's different stages of, of anger. So there's no doubt if you were to arouse my anger right now, um, I will be less focused on things that perhaps you want me to be focused on. And I, you know, I also think that it will be impossible for me to do tasks that is outside of that particular focus. I mean, that makes sense. But particularly the anger that I'm interested, that is anger at, at oppression. Um, I think we need to paint a more kind of uh, nuanced picture of what that state is. And I want to say states, um, because it's one thing to see a video of police brutality, for example, and be like, uh, be aroused with anger. I mean, I, I'm not thinking about anything but that video and the injustice that is happening. Um, but talk to me 24 hours. I'm still going to be mad, but I'm not going to be as um, unfocused, one might say. And, 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 and empirical evidence suggests that what happens is I do stuff with that anger. I deliberate. I think about how we can organize, which requires kind of, you know, a process and a rational process. And I decide how we ought to create laws. I, I argue, I write op-eds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there just seems to be, as much as there's empirical evidence in a lab that suggests or that agrees with Seneca, when I think about on the ground stuff, a way this stuff plays out. I think it's completely um, a generalization to say that if you are angry, therefore you are rational. So we should get rid of it because I, I see uh, evidence to the contrary. I mean, that's interesting. When you pointed out that anger has stages, it's not just one single stable thing. I mean, one response to that might be that you'll say, okay, anger can be a good motivation for our thinking. But still, while you're actually doing the thinking, you've got to reach the stage where you have calmed down and are stable. Or do you think that whole kind of response is asking us to kind of carve up angry and not angry in too simplistic a way? Yeah, yeah. I th listen, I think that you can be, you know, I was thinking about this morning and thinking about my emotional states because I'm just a weirdo. And, you know, so, so we kind of assess in the morning, okay, how do I feel? And, you know, there's no doubt that at the forefront of my mind, I may describe my mood in a certain kind of way that doesn't include anger. Um, and then I go to Twitter and I just realize, oh, I'm still angry about the stuff that I was angry about yesterday. Um, but the intensity of that is very differently, right? I'm still able to think about our conversation today. I'm still able um, to do some writing this this morning. Um, and I think that the, that the belief that to be angry is not to be calm 
whatever that means, because I think we need to unpack that, is I, th- I just don't think that that just matches up to, to particular evidence. I mean, what do we mean by calm? Do we mean calm presentation? Or do we mean calm kind of um, emotional or deliberative state, right? So, you know, I, just we can talk about this a little bit later, uh, but there's a lot of evidence of people who was angry and calm, um, but was able to, to, to deliberate in a certain kind of, kind of way. So I don't see those two being mutually exclusive. My mother was a, a person who was angry, but could do it in a way that was so calm that it was made it made the anger all the more frightening. <laughs> so we, we have this myth or this, this conception that to be angry is to be kind of like this furious, out of control, mad person who just can't settle themselves. Um, and I just think that that's pain and anger in broad strokes. And once we begin to see that anger can look differently in very different contexts, then I think we can get rid of this kind of irrational kind of picture of anger. Okay, I'm going to bring in Katerina in a second, but before I do, just one last question. I mean, what you're saying is countercultural in, in, in many ways, I mean, not just against you know, thousands of years of philosophy. But you know, a lot of people are making the case that right now our problem is there is just too much anger in our public debate, particularly around social media. I mean, Owen Flanagan, one of the guests earlier on in the series, you know, he, he made this point on his view. He said he thought we'd never lived in angrier times than we do now. And this was a deep problem. So the complaint is that so many of our discussions are not productive because people aren't controlling their anger. Do you think that analysis is simply wrong? Or once again, do you think it's because people aren't separating out properly the different facets of anger? I mean, there's two things, right? So what is what is meant by control your anger, right? Do we mean an eradication of it so that we therefore are no longer angry and we're calm? Or do we mean that we are managing in the sense that we're making sure that it's appropriate, that we're making sure that it's fruitful? I mean, it's still there, but we're making sure that it's appropriate. We're making sure that it's fruitful. And and once again, I want to say, I mean, there's a difference between, you know, controlling ourselves <laughs> in general, right? Um, and, and blame it on the emotion. I think it's just a, it's just a quick way to kind of beat up on anger, which I'm trying to defend. But I think there's, there's, a, there's a way in which you can manage anger that doesn't require that it is eliminated. And so there's no doubt that I think anger management is important. And, and controlling our anger is important, but that control doesn't necessarily mean a full eradication. But I also think that the Twitter, as much as you know, we want to talk about Twitter and it being a space of more outrage in a sense that none of those things are, are, are productive. I just don't think that Twitter is a space in which argumentation can truly happen. And um, so even using it as a counterexample, I think it fails in so many ways. Um, because even if we were all calm, rational human beings, I still don't think that that's the space in which true deliberation can can truly occur for reasons that perhaps we can talk about. Katarina, you've been waiting patiently and not getting angry. Uh, what do you think? <laughs> no, no, no. Well, how could I be angry? I mean, I, I, I've been reading Maisha's work today in preparation for the interview, and I absolutely love it. So I... Lovely to listen to her anyway. So, yeah, I've been uh, dealing with kind of similar questions, at least to some extent. There's some overlap with what Maisha was talking about. In particular, I've been uh, with with my team. We've been investigating the conditions under which argumentation and and deliberation are likely to be fruitful and the conditions under which that's not the case. So, so first of all, I mean, the, the, the background picture here is one where thinking well, right, being a good epistemic agent is going to be a thoroughly social story, right? So to think well, you need to think with other people. That's just the starting point. 
And then how do you engage in fruitful epistemic exchanges? And epistemic exchanges are of many kinds. And then in particular, deliberation argumentation will be one specific kind of epistemic exchanges. And what we've been discovering with my team is that, uh, well, you know, you really need to look at the whole kind of situation not just at the content of the argument in and of itself. So the things you need to look at are, for example, the, the structure of the attentional networks. So which arguments are, you know, having, being sufficiently exposed to a broad audience or not. Another element is the element of, of reputation and trust. And so the idea that to engage in a, in a fruitful argumentation process with somebody, you need to have a certain amount of uh, well, you could say trust, but in any case, you th- should think that it's w- going to be worth your time. And if you don't, if you really have no expectation that it's going to be a fruitful conversation, you, d- you don't even engage. So then it doesn't matter if the argument is good or not. And thirdly, then there's, of course, the question of how, once you actually engage, how is it productive, fruitful to engage? And then that's where, among other things, we also look at the role of emotions in these uh, argumentative exchanges, engagements, because uh, as Maisha was mentioning, there's this whole tradition of opposing rationality and emotions. Uh, This is almost as old as philosophy itself. And there are many reasons to reject this dichotomy. And uh, so I think, you know, that's very important for us to think about the role of emotions in cognition more generally, and also in particular in argumentative processes. So I'm very much, I think, with Maisha that uh, it's a mistake to just declare any kind of emotional interference in deliberative processes as irrational and therefore to be excluded. Uh, But at the same time, I also uh, share the idea that it's not any kind of anger or any kind of emotion that's going to lead to fruitful interaction. There are ways in which you engage in, in an emotional way that are more likely to produce uh, a positive engagement than others. So if anything, actually, the one, one thing that's been studied quite a bit is that in order to produce persuasion, right, to cause persuasion in somebody else, very often narratives, they work better than arguments. Uh, narratives in the sense that they're like, you know, particular stories of particular individuals, they, they are more efficient in terms of provoking a certain reaction uh, a certain change of beliefs in the receiver, then let's say, you know, abstract general arguments. So I think in that sense, you really need to think about also the, the role of emotions, very broadly speaking, including anger, but also other aspects and also communicative strategies that are in the neighborhood of argumentation, such as narratives and how to integrate all this. Ultimately, the whole idea is really how to make our, our epistemic exchanges with each other better, and also knowing when not to exchange epistemically, when the circumstances are not good. And Maisha just mentioned that Twitter may not be a good place for a sustained argumentative engagement, given the affordances of the platform. It's just not meant for that. And one of the things that happens with Twitter is that it's very easy to lose sight of common ground. So you assume that somebody you know, you're arguing with saw your previous t- tweet, but actually they didn't. 
So they don't really know where you're coming from. And so these conversations become very fragmented. So one thing I've learned over the years, don't engage in very heated debates over Twitter because it's likely to derail given, I wouldn't say so much, it's only a matter of the anger involved. It's very much a matter of the the affordances of the platform, what kind of dialogues are possible in these platforms. You use the phrase there, epistemic exchanges. And I assume what we mean here is exchanges that involve the transfer of knowledge or exchange of knowledge in some way. Exactly. I mean, exchange of resources that can be uh, described as epistemic resources. And of course, then you get into a bit of a bind because it's very difficult to kind of circumscribe the the realm of the epistemic, right, as a particular kind of phenomenon. And one of the things that has become that have become very clear in recent literature, for example, in epistemic injustice and others, is that the ethical and the epistemic are much more intertwined than we often like to think. But in any case, the idea of epistemic exchanges is that it's exchanges that involve resources that are somehow related to knowledge, to evidence, to justification, so to what we would call epistemic phenomena. Okay, so I think both of you are agreeing to the extent that a neat, simplistic distinction between reason and emotion is not a good thing. And then Katerina mentioned how narratives are very powerful in persuading people. But the worry there, of course, is that these narratives aren't necessarily better at getting people to see the truth. Narratives are often used by people with very highly dubious agendas and goals and aims. Think about these narratives around national pride and humiliation and restoration, which are very powerful in in Russia right now. So, Maisha, I mean, you've talked about, you know, going with people's anger. I don't know how much you think we should be sort of using narratives, but how do you deal with that worry that, you know, we don't want people to just to be following their, their, their less rational, reasonable selves, which is the, always the risk when we try and sort of use these more emotive forms of communication? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think uh, a kind of implicit way in which I answer, answer this question has a lot to do with the kind of anger that I'm motivating in the book, right, in the context in which I'm very much concerned about. So it's not just that I'm making a case for rage. I mean, that's the title of the book, um, but I'm making a case for a distinct kind of rage. Uh, one might even say kind of, quote unquote, a virtuous kind of rage, a noble kind of rage, um, a rage that I think has, because of its features that it has, that it's more prone to welcome deliberation, to welcome different voices, because it has as its target, or at least the perspective that informs it is this notion uh, it's of inclusivity. It aims for, for justice. It is against injustice. And, and I think because given those particular features, um, that it's less prone in, in comparison to other kinds of, of destructive rages that I'm talking about. Um, I mean, even the, 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 the argument that I'm making is inspired by the, the, the poet Audre Lorde. The essay is called The Uses of Anger. And she's basically, it's a speech, right? She's trying to persuade um, a white, a predominantly white audience of, of other feminists, reminding them that uh, we can't really get truly free um, as long as you continue to have racist views, right? So you got to get over this racism. So let's talk about this uncomfortable conversation um, so that we can address this and we can finally tackle tackle the patriarchy. And so the speech itself, which talks about anger, I mean, she's very much angry and she made people angry. <laughs> um, you know, there's there's responses uh, in, a, in a biography about how people thought about the speech. I mean, people was pretty, pretty, pretty angry. Um, and, but now we use the, the, the essay as kind of an illuminating 
kind of document about kind of the potential of anger, the nature of anger, particularly the kind of anger that, that Audre Lorde is motivating. And you contrast that kind of uh, noble kind of anger um, that it includes inclusivity with a kind of anger that I refer to as rogue rage, for example, in the book. And rogue rage, I guess we can compare this to the kind of anger that people who stormed the, the Capitol had, right? In which it's just impossible to, to do any kind of deliberation with that kind of anger. Why not? Well, it's focused on scapegoats, so it's not really focused on an actual true target. So one might even say that embedded in that particular anger is an acceptance of a kind of irrationality or an acceptance of a kind of non-truth. Um, and until you tackle that, you can't even transform that anger into something a little bit more positive. And, and, um, and basically what I'm just trying to say is that um, it all depends on the kind of anger that one is, is defending or motivating that would then make it kind of useful um, not only in anti-racist processes um, or cases, but will allow for the kind of welcoming kind of deliberation that we're, that we're referring to. And I don't think that it's possible to put a rogue rager in conversation with a person with anti-racist anger. I just think that there, there, there's going to be some roadblocks for the reasons um, that, was, that was discussed. So I think it depends on the kind of anger that we're talking about that can welcome the kind of stuff. So if you have anti-racist anger, you're not trying to persuade people to kill the president. I mean, that's just not going to happen. You're not going to persuade people that they are, are superior to other people who are inferior. I mean, it just doesn't have that as its, as its features. And I think that matters. Okay, well, this sort of addresses the worry I had, which is, you know, talk about the right kind of anger is got to be rooted in some kind of, you know, righteous cause, some kind of righteousness. But often, yeah, people have a sense of righteousness which is misplaced, or a sense of righteousness that you and I would probably think was was completely m- mistaken. It seems to me you've got to be quite cool-headed to recognise whether or not you have a genuine righteous right. anger or whether a kind of anger that's rooted right. in a false sense of righteousness based on some bogus grievance. So your, your point, Julian, was, well, narratives can, can be put to use for different causes, and uh, and I actually this is a, a position I defend about all forms of communication. So I think propaganda also has this feature that it cuts both ways. I actually have a paper called "Pornography, Propaganda, and Ideology." I think cutting both ways, right? And that if you know if propaganda can be used for bad causes, it can also be used for good causes. And the same holds for narratives. So narratives. So Hannah Arendt, for example, is somebody who very much emphasizes the importance of a collective narrative, right, for a sense of social identity, right, that we construe together as a society. But she also, well, perhaps she was a bit overly more optimistic than I am, but as you noted yourself, we also know there are many examples of narratives, in fact, being used for oppressive political agendas. So I think I'm a I'm I'm less optimistic than Maisha in the sense that there's always going it's always going to be clear what the moral compass is. So I'm a bit more like, as you said, you know, I I really do believe that every almost everybody, not everybody, but most people who are engaged in some form of activism or another, they really believe they're on the right side of history, right? It's just that then, depending on where you are, and of course I am, not of course, but as it happens, I'm very much also on the egalitarian, anti-racist side of the moral spectrum, you know, having grown up in Brazil, which is another country where there was a, where there's a very uh, extensive history of slavery. So there are many commonalities with the situation uh, in the United States. So my, this is my moral political commitment. All I'm saying is that the 
communicative devices that are used, save to promote, say, the anti-racist cause, as I see it, they can just as well be turned around. And in fact, they often are turned around and used exactly to promote the opposite causes. So in that sense, there's, there are tools that can be put to use for different things. And that's, so it's, so in a sense, like the, the kind of the moral valence of the cause, I see it as independent from the communicative devices that are used to promote the cause. So it really cuts both ways. And so that we, which means that ultimately there's no, there's no method that is intrinsically, that is it going to intrinsically have this particular normative valence. No, methods of communication can really be put to use for different political projects. The ones that I consider to be good from my point of view, but also those that I don't, that I don't approve of. So I'm more of a relativist perhaps than Maisha in this respect. No, I think, I think, I think we agree. I mean, I think, I think, uh, there's no doubt. I mean, when I think about narratives here, I'm thinking about Frederick Douglass life. I mean, in his, in his arguments that he is anti-slavery argument, he constantly em- employed his own, his own narratives. And that was very, Absolutely. very persuasive. Um, in addition to his angry speeches. Um, and there's, there's no doubt that there were, uh, pro-slavery arguments <laughs> that was also employed in narrative. We know that in the United States, there's Confederate narratives about how enslaved Africans were very happy with their particular state and that leads to particular exactly. de- conclusion. Yeah. So I, I definitely agree that, that narratives within itself can be used by either group. I think what I'm saying is that the anger is not on par. No, I, that, that, so, so we're not disagreeing. Yeah, right, right, right. And I think the, the, the abolitionist cause is, is actually an example that I often cite, which showed the limits of rational argument, right? So for decades, People were arguing rationally uh, against slavery, and there there wasn't much uptake at all. And then when the, I mean, this is obviously a simplification, oversimplification of this very interesting and complex history. But as as far as I know, and perhaps Maisha knows better than me, uh, the 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 story is that once uh, the abolitionist movement started appropriating communicative devices, communicative methods, such as relying on personal narratives, right? Of what's the name of the guy who boxed himself, who, uh, who sent himself by mail, right, right, right. The, the, the slave, so to escape. So these stories, they were extremely important. These personal stories, these life stories were extremely important to promote the abolitionist movement. And here, this is what I, what I wanted to point out is precisely that this is when rational arguments don't work for a certain cause, then you see, for example, that one way in which you can have the uptake that you're not having by means of rational arguments, says, for example, to go kind of particularist, right, rather than giving these kind of universal arguments uh, that appeal to, say, general principles of rationality. Instead, you start telling stories about particular individuals and that this has much more uptake. But again, this can go both ways as with everything. So, so, so that, that's the, the sense in which narrative is also not either in its intrinsically good or bad, politically and morally speaking. Well, we, we've talked about the history of philosophy being kind of against emotion. But of course, if you go back to Aristotle's rhetoric, he mm-hmm. very famously argued that rhetoric required logos, which was reason, ethos, which was to do with the character of the speaker, and also 
pathos, emotion. So actually, right back there at the early days of, of the Western tradition, we did have some role for um, emotion. Although, because we need to remember, of course, that uh, Aristotle, for all his greatness, was also a terrible misogynist and a supporter of yes. slavery. But listen, we've been going on um, too long already. We could talk about that for hours and hours and hours, but we, we need to move on. So, Katerina, what is it you would like us to think about to help us to think better? Yes. Uh, so one thing I think I mentioned to you when we were emailing about this is the idea of to think well, you need to defer well, uh, because uh, uh, again, given this background of a thoroughly social conception of of the human epistemic life, uh, we can't really, uh, you know, this idea of extreme epistemic autonomy where I figure things out all on my own. This is a this is actually a very bad epistemic policy. So the problem is then, well, you, you need to rely on other people who will have bits and pieces of knowledge that you don't have. But the problem is that right, this kind of higher order epistemic activity of assessing who to defer to and who, who, who is trustworthy enough for you to defer to, this is actually extremely hard too. And this can also be gamed, right, in many ways. So you can kind of play and temper with perceptions of reliability. And uh, so I, I think that uh, that's kind of a general point. And there's an interesting book that came out last year, the year before by New Levy uh, called Bad Beliefs, which is very much a defense of why wow, we should defer. It's good to defer to others because of this con- social conception of knowledge. And I'm very much on board where Levy and I disagree is that I think knowing how to defer well is extremely hard. It's very hard to, because we, you know, these markers of reliability, they're not reliable in and of themselves. So, so, so in that sense, uh, yes, I guess, you know, this is what I think is very important, but at the same time, I'm also saying that it's very hard to do this properly and at the same time, inevitable. Yeah, I mean, that's very interesting because we, you know, we're always being told, think for yourself, think for yourself. But of course, you know, we have to defer to other people on, on many occasions. And, and you, you said it's complicated, but are there any kind of principles or rules of thumb that people can use? So the next time they're asking themselves, well, you know, should I defer to this person or not? They've got some kind of, you know, test to apply or, or questions to ask. Yes. And by the way, let me just say that you say, well, autonomy, and sometimes we need to defer to other people. I think it's actually the other way around. Most of the time we're deferring and sometimes we're thinking for ourselves, right? So uh, say a good epistemic agent by and large relies on others. And uh, so that, that's the, the, the kind of the predominant epistemic attitude, I would say. So one thing that, I mean, there's the, the, of course, the literature on expertise, right? So and then what counts as markers of expertise? And, uh, and that, again, on the one hand, we, are, we have some conventions on what counts as markers of expertise. So if you have certain... Uh, you know, academic degrees and, and, and things like that. Of course, these, these count, but that's also not going to be enough, especially when you have the situation of experts disagreeing with each other. They both have good, uh, you know, academic credentials, like you know, they have proof of expertise, and yet they're disagreeing. What do you do as a layperson, right? right? Who do you trust? So that's also not going to be enough, although it's important. Uh, so for example, right, I mean, if you you, some, like so, I don't know, your uncle said something which contradicts what an expert in the area in question said. Well, then if you compare the relative expertise of one with the other, then it's clear that one 
the expert seems to be more qualified to have an opinion on that. So that's just a general principle. But one thing I've been working on a lot is the question of interests and alignment of interests. So and that too is, is, can be tricky in many ways, right? So this idea that uh, trustworthiness, uh, that epistemic trustworthiness has actually two components. It has the, the, the competence component that has to do with expertise, but also it has the benevolence component, which has to do with uh, how much uh, the other person who's passing knowledge on to you, the interests of this person is are aligned to your interests or not. Right? So do they have the motivation to try to fool you uh, into in, misleading you into thinking something that's going to be in their advantage? So, so in a way, it's a bit of a cynical recommendation, right? Which is to say, check, you know, what, what's the alignment of interests there? And this is something, on the one hand, this is exactly what, for example, people who criticize the pharmaceutical industry, right? So people, for example, who oppose vaccines, they say, well, you shouldn't uh, trust just what people, like what the government said, what the scientists say, because they all have an agenda, right? So they are doing this for their own financial interests. But then you can turn this around precisely and say, hey, look at those very people who are propagating this kind of discourse what are they gaining from doing this? And it's become a business model, right? So I do think that, uh, you know, this is one way in which you can say for somebody who's, you know, kind of torn between should I trust the, the scientists and the pharmaceutical industry or should I trust this YouTuber who says that it's all a scam? Then I say, well, what does the YouTuber have to gain from doing all this, right? So then is this also disinterest, disinterested or is there also a stake for the YouTuber? So cynical as it may sound, this is very, very much a, a parameter that I think is very important that we do use when we're reasoning, but not always well, right? And in, in this sense, it's, you know, really to weigh the different uh, options that you have and to see like how aligned the different interests are with your own or if they don't have like spurious interests in the background. So it's very cynical. I don't know. Do you find this sort of disappointing, Julian? Would you prefer something a bit more kind of <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not disappointed at all. But um, Maisha, this is the idea of deference. Like I, I think I'd agree with Katerina that actually most of the time, in one way or another, we're deferring to the knowledge of others, relying on the things we've been told. But I guess if you're coming to this from the perspective of you know racial justice that there are certain kind of traps of deference that one would very much want to avoid. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting here because the ways in which oppression works, a lot of it is structural and material, but there's a lot of psychological stuff at play and a lot of uh, epistemic things at, at play. And there's a, a very popular paper by Amina Krishnamurthy that talks about kind of the, the necessity for distress that even not only against uh, those in political power, but even those who are allies who has a certain kind of power. And so she sees kind of distress as being, <laughs> being a virtue in, in, in some, in some sense. It's also interesting about, uh, about the deference um, is that one of the things that I mentioned about, you know, when you encounter an agent in the context of social injustice, what's often the move uh, that is being made um, is kind of a, a, a silencing move. That's very much epistemic, a, 
uh, anger policing mood that I think is also very epistemic in the sense that there are people who are in power who gaslights those individuals' uh, um, anger, suggesting that they don't have a reason to be angry, or, you know, kind of overprove the, the 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 reason for their particular anger, um, asking them to kind of readjust, suggesting that if they don't have a calm presentation and they can't be listened to. And so there's a lot of, one might say, you put all the stakes of being listened to or being taken seriously in the hands of those who, who, are, who are powerful. And I think in that way, if I want to call that deference, in that way it becomes highly problematic. But it's not to say that I suggest that the individual, the angry agent, therefore, you know, is, it becomes isolated. One of the things that I kind of advocate is this need for community. And I think part of that community, communal aspect is indeed has kind of epistemic components, right? So, you know, we mentioned um, anger management earlier. And, and I suggest that, you know, when you don't know if you're properly managing your anger, that perhaps you need to, to talk to your community members, right, and, and get kind of feedback from them. Um, and also listen to them. If they say, hey, you're engaging in actions that are not necessarily productive, then you trust them already, right? You, you share a kind of benevolence. You share kind of similar interests. So you trust their opinion and their assessment of your anger much more than perhaps you accept powerful, powerful people. So I see, I see deference working um, in ways that can be highly problematic, particularly when you want your anger uh, taken seriously by powerful people and the kind of strategies that they often take to silence one's anger. Um, but I think deference can have in important role to play in one's community, um, them helping you to assess it and make sure that it's appropriate and making sure that it stays productive. So I guess with a lot of these things, when, when you put things in, in binary terms, they become very misleading. So the question isn't, you know, do we defer or do we not defer? It's, you know, when, how and how much. Right. So I'm thinking about this in relation to, you know, what's known as standpoint theory, which broadly speaking is the idea that certain people, because of their, their lived experience, have a perspective on an issue which gives them a kind of privileged access to it. So, for example, you know, if you want to think about you know, black Americans in you know, the current society, then you know, black Americans have a you know, particular insight into what it means to, to live in that position and therefore have a certain sort of special authority to speak about it, which needs to be considered when thinking about what to do about it. So you know, what some people worry about with that kind of idea is that you, you can't simply just sort of turn over the final decision on these things to people who have the experience. So yes, a certain weight should be given to them, but you can't just sort of automatically defer and assume that their analysis of what is going on and their proposed solutions for what should be done are the best ones. It's not about complete deference. Yeah, so, so there's really, obviously, you're absolutely right, it's going to be a matter of degrees, but it is contrastive. So this is a thing that's also coming out very strongly out of our work, which is that, let's take it, the, how, mu- how much deference you can attribute to different people. It's a somewhat, in a way, it's finite, right? So you can't just attribute, right, so trustworthiness to everybody. There's some sort of contrastiveness to it, right? So if I if I trust more this one person, right, let's make it a matter of degrees and not binary, that means I'm going to trust somebody else less. So in that sense, there's a bit of a kind of structural systemic thing to it. And so that's one thing I wanted to say. And the other thing, so you, you brought up standpoint theory. And uh, so there's this idea of the knowledge that you acquire from lived experiences, right? That experience is a source of knowledge. And to know about, say, the phenomenon of racism the people who experience it on the receiving side, so to say, they're going to have a certain knowledge of it, which is going to be 
in many senses, uh, more accurate than the people who never have to deal with it on a daily basis. And this, of course, general point of standpoint theory, I like the Charles Mills formulation, for example, that it's a matter of survival. So you have to, he says, you have to become a lay anthropologist, right? So a, a person, a, a black person in the United States, uh, and perhaps Maisha has this experience uh, her, from her own lived experience, in a way you become a, a lay anthropologist of white people to be able to survive at all. Right? So I don't know if this reson resonates with you, Maisha. No, that's it. That's right. Yeah. And then, but one thing I wanted to say, which coming back to the point about interests, right? So one of the problems with advocating for, for your own group, as it were, is that if for, you know, since you're advocating for, say, more opportunities, more resources, because you think you're not being given your fair share, then the people who are on the other side, as it were, right, the people who are not part of your group, they're going to say, yeah, but you're advocating in your own interest. It's in self-interest. Right? So this is something uh, I've experienced a lot as a woman. You know, if I as a woman now, it's, it's not so bad anymore. But say 15, 10 years ago, it was still very common to have these conferences in philosophy, which were 100 percent, you know, man speaking. And uh, people started, you know, doing campaigns about this and say, well, hey, isn't this a problem? And then if I as a woman would say, look, it's not okay that this conference is, you know, has an all male lineup. People are like, oh, it's because, you know, you are upset because you were not invited. So you're <laughs> speaking, you're advocating for yourself. And what I discovered, and it, this is also, I mean, obviously this makes a lot of sense, but it's also a bit cynical that the message went across better if it was a man who was saying, hey, it's not okay that this conference has a 100% male lineup. Because then it's clear at least that they're not advocating in their own interests and, and there's something right so what i mean to say is like you know if i say something that's going to benefit me personally and if somebody else says the same thing but that's not going to benefit them directly there's a sense in which their testimony is going to be perhaps more convincing because they don't have any stakes you know and this really puts in perspective the matter of allies and the importance of allies and that's something i i wonder if maisha has uh, something to say about this and what, what, you know, how do you feel about safe, you know, uh, white passing people such as myself, I say passing because my father wasn't exactly, he would never have been seen as white in the United States, but I'm seen as white, you know, how about somebody like me engaging in anti-racist movements? I do think there's a, on the one hand, there's this worry, why am I not stealing the kind of the, the, the momentum, right? The woomph. On the other hand, I'm not advocating in my own cause. So perhaps it has a different, the message has a different kind of uptake. It purely from a strategic perspective, maybe, right. you know, there, there's definitely value in that. So I just wanted to put this out there, that there's something about advocating when it's not in your own interests that is also powerful. Right, right. Strategically. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I mean, one might say that that's one of the, one of the roles, uh, one of the powerful aspects of having allies. Um, is that they can do that kind of work, right? In which their arguments would be taken up because it would be seen as not the work that they're doing is not appealing to their own their own interests. I also wonder, Katarina, maybe you can you can answer this question for me. I've come from a tradition in which, I mean, Audrey Lord 
said what I'm about to say. Audre Lord said this. Uh, Fannie Lou Hammer said this. This whole notion of I am not free until everyone is free. And in, in that way, if, if one takes that serious, I mean, one of the implications of that statement is that all of our interests are aligned yes. to some extent. I mean, the whole notion of even identity politics, for example, right? Or what people have taken that to be, that people are appealing to only their interests. And I just come from a tradition is that if one group get more freedom, it get more opportunities, yeah. uh, then that means that the, the political project, in, in, it, you know, becomes more a space of, of more freedom. Yeah. Um, so and, just, it, it, and it benefits everybody, right? Right. right. And not just, yeah. Yeah, no, lots of thoughts on this. If this, uh, I mean, Julian, do you want to chime in or should I just... No, no, that's fine. You just just keep 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 going on. But if you've got you know, a lot of thoughts, maybe keep them under control because we we have got finite time here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll try. It's, it's gonna be difficult. This is the first time Katarina and I are actually speaking, so there's lots exactly. there's lots to talk about. So keep us focused, Julian. Keep yes. us focused. You, you need to have a private follow up, I think. Ears, exactly. Ears of common interests, right, Maisha? So, so uh, on the one hand, I'm I'm very attracted to, to to this picture as well, and this is also my conception of feminism. Right, I think that the patriarchy is bad for women and men in different ways. Right, so I do think that you know overcoming the patriarchy is going to put us all in a better position. So, in that sense, I, I very much agree with this general view. And another thing is that currently, with my group, we're reading. Uh, the Pedagogy of the Oppressed by the Brazilian Wonderful. thinker Paulo Freire, right? And he has exactly the same view that when the oppressor is oppressing, this also dehumanizes the oppressor, not only the oppressed. So as long as there are these relations of oppression, both oppressed and oppressor are not free, right? So I, I find this picture extre- extremely compelling. The problem is that this is very much kind of in the long run, as it were, mm-hmm. whereas it kind of in the more immediate future, what happens, of course, is, you know, if a particular group of people have had a lot of privileges so far, historically speaking, and they have to give up on some of those privileges, to them, it feels like they're losing out. Right, right. right? So, so in that sense, I mean, as a metaphysical picture, I'm very sympathetic to that in the long run, but I think there's going to be a lot of political struggles before we get there. And in a sense, I do, at the same time, I'm also attracted to this kind of agonistic picture where there's always going to be conflict of interests Mm -hmm. throughout. Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to be friction all the way down, say a Nietzschean, Foucaultian picture where there's not going to be this moment where we all become free. It's going to be friction all the way down. So I, I hesitate between these two, these two views. You know, in my cynical days, I'm like, you know, agonism is inevitable in my more optimistic days, I'm with Paulo Freire and Audrey Lord, where I think that we can all be free together. So I don't have a set of Yeah, I like that distinction. I mean, I would say this. It could be the case that it could be in your best interest to have freedom, but that's not everyone's interest. <laughs> Even in the long term, that's not everyone's interest. Okay, so we need to be wrapping up soon. So I'll just put one thing briefly on the table. We won't spend a lot of time talking about it. I think it does relate to what's been saying earlier. So Maisha's talking about you know, the, the, the use of emotions as part of our reasoning. And Katarina was talking about how, you know, if you if you make a case for something, people are very quick to attribute motivations to you for that, you know, that it's somehow uh, promoting your own agenda. Uh, I think there is a trap that people fall into. They don't necessarily do it deliberately, but there's a strong temptation, you know, when you're getting involved in some kind of discussion to, well, I mean, I call it to psychologize. 
What I mean by that is rather than simply engaging with what people are saying you know, on its own merits, is you, you make an assumption about what people's psychological motivations are. And sometimes we're right. Sometimes we are aware of, of what's going on psychologically, why people are motivating. And it's no bad things have some sensitivity to what people's agendas you know, might be. But I think generally this is something we ought to be very, very careful about. We ought to hesitate or at least question before we assume we know why it is that someone is advocating or making a case that they're doing. So what do you make of that, Maisha? No, I agree. And I mean, we've been talking about anger as, as if it's like in the abstract, the outside of the person, um, or it's only through kind of the expression itself. But I think, I think it's important to, to think about anger as, as an argument, right? You know, what this anger does, it involves a judgment <laughs> that something has gone terribly wrong, right? There's more to be said here, right? So then let's just say, you know, that's part of the premise, right? Something has gone wrong in the world. And I think we need to listen to the anger, listen to the angry person, because that's going to lead us to a particular conclusion together um, or individually, but it's going to lead us to a particular conclusion. So I think it's important. It goes to the listening. So this has a lot to do with assuming. We have a tendency to assume because we're so separate from the individual uh, or we're quick to psychologize them or dismiss them because we see them just simply as an angry agent. And I think this will go differently if we actually take them as a deliberative agent who has something to say via their anger. And I think if we do the latter, then that would lead us to less psychologize, even the psychological state itself. Yes. Again, I guess I'm really a pessimist today. I have a bit of a bleak view of human communication in general. I think by and large, we kind of end up talking past each other. We think we know what the other person means and what the other person wants. But, you know, because of the egocentric bias, as it were, right, we're kind of projecting how we would feel if we were in their situation. So in that sense, uh, I think we have very much this tendency of projecting intentions and psychological states. And, and in that sense, I think I agree with both, both of you in that if we know that we have this tension and we often get it wrong, this is a good reason to, uh, you know, approach a particular conversation with a certain amount of charity, as it were, right? And say, well, may, I think this is what's going on, but maybe I'm wrong. So, it, again, it speaks in favor of listening, right? Listening as a, as a very difficult uh, skill, a very difficult art, I would almost say, right? It's so hard to really listen well rather than immediately projecting uh, your own assumptions about the psychological state of the person and all this. So in that sense, I, I very much agree. On the other hand, I'm always thinking of this kind of contrastive picture. So if I'm going to spend time talking to the two of you, which I'm doing with much pleasure, of course, that means this time I'm spending here, I am not doing something else. So I'm constantly making these choices of where to allocate my precious time, my precious cognitive resources. So if I perceive this person as somebody who I antecedently shouldn't be trusting, there's a sense in which from like an, an internal rationality point of view, it makes sense to say, I don't even want to spend time on this person. I don't even want to engage with this person. So it's very, it's very hard. I mean, it almost, you know, we're in a very kind of dilemmatic situation that on the one hand, we have so much to learn from people who have different perspectives and, and from listening, right? And really kind of rather than already projecting a certain state of mind. On the other hand, I'm making choices all the time. And so it kind of makes sense for me to, uh, you know, choose to talk to and engage with people who I think have something of value to offer. But again, we also often make mistakes there, right? Because 
that's going to make us more prone to look for like-minded people. Right. And, and people who are, you know, already think kind of like I do because I already kind of relate to them in some way. So that makes it also very, I, I mean, I think the very process of engaging with people who are different from you, right, who are coming from a different place is just fundamentally hard, mm-hmm. right? And I, I, it's still very good advice and it's still advice that I try to follow. I, I in fact, follow a lot, bunch of people on Twitter with whom I fundamentally disagree even if sometimes it makes me angry, right? To talk about anger, I look at things they say and say, oh my God. But I also find it important that I keep listening, that I tr- keep trying to follow their reasoning. But it's also very hard. It's very hard to do this. There's no kind of clear cut advice here because, right? I mean, it's on the one hand, you should listen. On the other hand, you should be thinking about how to allocate your resources in a way that's going to be beneficial. So, but Katarina, don't you think the the, the hard stuff? And maybe this is just me being a philosophical weirdo here. It's the hard stuff is is the good stuff. Yeah, right. No, so, I, so I'm 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 led to even from a, from an intellectual perspective, where the hard stuff leads me to now think about what needs to be done. Right, not necessarily necessary and sufficient conditions, but it it it, it just opens up my imaginative, my more imaginative capacities to kind of um, imagine what needs to be done to make it less hard, but also from an ethical perspective, I mean, I like a challenge. I mean, I think human agents, I mean, this is just a human reality. Being a human is hard. And I just think that like the task itself of, of listening is, is, is in the difficulty that you're suggesting is embedded in it, it. It just spices up the human experience for us to, to do, at least it motivates me to kind of want to do the hard stuff. Um, because that's just what being human is, 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 is all about. So I'm, I'm inspired by the hard labels. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I'm sympathetic, for example, to this idea by Jose Medina of uh, epistemic friction, right? Which comes, which is inspired by Foucault in turn. So I do think that there's this thing, how much you learn from, from this friction. On the other hand, I, I also think there's potentially also much to lose. Right. You know, so all I'm trying to point out is that, you know, and of course we're philosophers, so we love to kind of like find out about new things. But let's not forget that perhaps this is not the only way to lead a good life, right? right. And and then you know, for people who perhaps you know just have a different vision of what their life should their life should be like, so I I can see how it's also for them it makes sense for them to live their whole lives within their own community, a very fulfilling life, and you know. And there, I, I mean, this connects actually to the to the concept of cosmopolitanism. I've been thinking about this recently, right? So I used to take it that it was like obviously better to be cosmopolitan over being, say, provincial, mm-hmm. right? And more and more, you know, as I grow older, perhaps I, I realize also that there are also risks and pitfalls pitfalls involved with cosmopolitanism. Right, with this idea of constantly engaging with people who are different from right. you, super interesting, super rich, but there are costs involved mm-hmm. as well. And so, this is the thing that I, I I don't really have an answer to this yet. I'm just a, you know pointing out that you know a ch- where if you choose to lead a life where you know I don't know you're just you know not doing this, I think it can also be a fulfilling life. And in many senses, it will be an easier life, perhaps mm-hmm. less interesting from our point of view, mm-hmm. but not intrinsically bad as such. So listen, I'm afraid I think we ought to bring things to a to a close now. Even though we're just getting started, right? <laughs> we're just getting started. It's eight o'clock over here. I'm wide awake now. 
Well, that's the problem. Indeed, indeed. Early in the morning from Aisha there. Well, I'm very pleased because I, I believe that although the two of you work in overlapping areas, this is the first time you've actually sort of had a direct discussion with each other. So I'm very happy to have uh, facilitated that. And I'm, I'm sure this conversation is going to continue afterwards. Thank you. Thank, <laughs> Thank you, you Julian. So if you want to find out more about my guests and their work, the, the obvious place to start from Aisha, I think, is her book, uh, The Case for Rage. Why Anger is Essential for Anti-Racist Struggle, and of course, her Unmute podcast. Uh, Katerina, now, your book, The Dialogical Roots of Deduction, it, it won this prestigious Lakatosh Award. Does that mean it's heavy-duty, academic, and therefore perhaps uh, a bit too much for the interested general reader? Yes or no? I mean, I, on the one hand, it really is an academic monograph. And uh, so, and in fact, I, I want my next book on argumentation, because this one was really on deductive argumentation very specifically. I want my next book on the stuff we've been talking about here to be more kind of like a, accessible. And I was reading my issues today and I'm like, wow, this is such a great way to write an accessible book. So I'll definitely take it as an inspiration. But uh, the dialogical roots of deduction, on the one hand, it's uh, you know, it's an academic book with lots of footnotes and, you know, very kind of scholarly, but I don't think it is heavy handed. I mean, many people tell me, look, you know, I, I really enjoyed reading it. And, and it, it's kind of modular as well, right? It has different parts. So if you're more interested in the history, you read the historical parts. If you're more interested in the cognitive part, you read the cognitive chapters on the cognitive phenomena. So, you know, it's, you can also kind of take, have a buffet attitude, as it were. You just take what you want. So I think it's quite okay. I mean, it's... Okay. Uh, and also, actually, there's a terrific episode of the New Books in Philosophy podcast where you talk in, in length about that book. So that's a, that's a great introduction to it if people don't have the time to actually read the whole thing, which many of us don't these days. Yes, with Bob, yes. Well, thanks very much again to both of you. And that is the last in this current series of Microphilosophy. It's been a fantastic uh, series. Previous episodes are available featuring Simon Kirchin and Anil Seth, Patricia Churchland and Owen Flanagan, Peter Adamson and Tom Kasoulis, Nalanjan Das and Leah Carmanson, Claire Chambers and Lucy O'Brien, and Lisa Bortolotti and Rebecca Buxton. I'll be back at some point unknown in the future with another series. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.